Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we are here today and able to study your word. We ask that you would give us uh, just attentive hearts and open hearts to see where we uh, need to be transformed and to see where we may need to be comforted and and see where our faith needs to grow in you and what you've done and accomplished and and what you will do for your people. And uh, we thank you that we get to, to study again today. And um, we know that it is a blessing that sometimes we take for granted. And so uh, just move in our hearts today and, and cause us to hunger after you. In Christ's name, amen. Do you ever think that those who commit evil go unpunished? I mean, I've had moments like that where I think, they're going to get away with this. You, you may have had something done against you, and you thought, and it's on a very personal level. I mean, sometimes you don't care about evil unless it affects you. Uh, you think, well, that really stinks for those people, but it doesn't really, it hasn't touched me in any way. Um, I, I think sometimes that is a, a reality. I was uh, listening to... Uh, a conversation that Tim Keller was hap- having um, that Anna had mentioned to me, and he was just talking about after 9-11, uh, you know, for us, uh, most of us, I don't think anybody in this room was there in New York City, uh, but he said after 9-11, living in New York City, for weeks you could smell, you, every time you went outside, everywhere you were, you could smell whatever uh, would have come from that tragedy. You know, there were 3,000 people that died. A building comes down. There's burning. And it was like for weeks you could smell that. And it was very real to those people. And and they were, uh, it was not from a distance, and it wasn't through a screen. It was in living color. And he said people would be, and New Yorkers are known for not being the most uh, lovey kind of people, you know, like, but he said they would just walk into places and say, like, did you lose someone? And, and there, there was just intimacy there. And he said, it, you know, it went away over time because, you know, your memory fades and you do have to return to, to life. But sometimes, uh, and, and all of us have been there where you, you kind of think, well, you, you do feel compassion for what's going on with me, but you don't really know what's going on with me. And in this case... David, on a very personal level, understood pain and he understood that it had been or it had come at the hands of a wicked man and he was heartbroken over it and he had to deal with it. And so do we. That's just a reality. You have to deal with that. Sometimes that wicked man to you is death. Sometimes that wicked man is a person. Sometimes the wicked man might be uh, the economy, the industry. It might just be, there, there are all different things in life that come to us or that we face and we think, man, what is going on? But in this case, this was a wicked person doing a horrific thing and David is dealing with that and trying to understand it, but not only understand it, to see it and to see it with clarity. And hopefully today, that will be clear to you. God is not blind to the suffering of his saints, and we will see that today and should be comforted by it. 
and uh, well, and, and but at the same time, always confronted because this is a psalm of wisdom. So you are learning uh, both. I guess you could say how to the oppressed people of God should deal with things, and uh, how the oppressor maybe someone sitting here today. You think I know the things that I have done, how how they need to respond. So we'll look at both of those. But the heart of this is judgment for a wicked man. That is the heart of what's going on here. As we start, we're going to kind of build the context. That's what he does in, in the, the title of this psalm. And then we're going to talk about the character of a wicked man, God's judgment, and the reality that the righteous will see their fall, but they will still be standing. And that's, that's a, a critical key for us. It's a critical key for all of us, and I think we need to see that. So, let's just start with the title. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So, if you uh, studied First and Second Samuel with us, you would know what we were talking about if you remembered it. Uh, you may uh, honestly have to go back and look at it. And so I'm just going to give you just a brief understanding of what this psalm would be about. Because it would be a very dark time in David's life. David, God did not keep David from seeing difficulty. And he experienced it and saw it in many different ways, sometimes because of him, sometimes because of the sins of another. But he experienced troubling times, and this would be a troubling thing in his life. In first second, I mean, sorry. In First Samuel nineteen, Saul tries to kill David. In First Samuel twenty, Jonathan warns David that his father's anger towards David has not subsided, but has continued to grow. And you know, you know, Jonathan is Saul's son, and Jonathan and David had an amazing relationship that was built on covenant, and they really cared for one another. 1 Samuel 21, David flees. Instead of returning to the house of Saul where he had been uh, much of his young adult life, he flees and goes to Nob. When he goes there, this is a place where priests were. Many priests lived there. When he goes there, uh, he meets Ahimelech, the priest. And when Ahimelech sees him, he knows that David's in a strange situation and maybe knew something of it, but maybe not fully, but just knew that when David, the great warrior, who was one of the top leaders in Israel, that people would say, David has killed, you know, 10,000. You know, like when they would speak statements over him and say, like, he is this great warrior, for him to show up with nothing, empty-handed and starving, something had to be wrong. So... Ahimelech meets up with him. David asks for holy bread. David is given holy bread. And then Ahimelech, so he provides for him and then says, David, you need some protection. And so he gives him the sword of Goliath there. And so that kind of sets up the story. So provision and protection granted to him. Um, but there was another man there lurking in the shadows who had been held back potentially, it says, because of the Lord in some way, potentially because of something he had done wrong. 
He is there, and you'll notice in 1 Samuel 21, 7, or you can just write it down. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he was uh, a very powerful man, and he was, you know, a right-hand man. The economy was built on shepherding, so he is over, like, a, a, a substantial thing in Israel and in Saul's kingdom. He would be at the top of the top guys of Saul. He would have known how much he hated David. He is sitting there and he is watching this priest both provide for David and then help him with his protection. And so he sees this extending of mercy to David by this man of mercy, right? That has this role in in Israel in that way. And so that man, you can think of him, this very powerful man, this very great man, and this man that probably identified with Saul in his hatred of David for multiple reasons. And not only that, it is very clear, his hatred for uh, the leaders in worship and the leaders of, you could say, that had ministries of mercy among the people of God, all of that's going on. He is sitting there watching this, and as he sees it unfold, he quietly begins to plot. It's like he, he would not have the courage to go and fight against David. Who would? But he begins to plot within himself of what he might do. So a very powerful man in Saul's kingdom who is thinking about what is taking place and preparing himself for what he might do next. And so you just kind of, that's what you have to put in your mind when you think about what is taking place. Okay, so let's move forward. We're saying that this psalm is about the judgment for a wicked man. We look at the context, and then we're going to talk about the character of this man. Why do you boast, O evil, O mighty man? The steadfast, of the, the steadfast love of God endures all day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. And lying more than speaking what is right. Now, I stopped and said, we kind of got the setting. But you understand, his, this man is sitting there taking this in and then concocting a scheme. It, is, it, it doesn't happen immediately. Several things are going to happen before uh, the, the, the writer of 1 Samuel is going to talk about this situation. But what you find out is this man takes what he sees and at the right time presents it to Saul. Saul says, are you serious? All these, or this priest helps in that way? I'm going to kill his whole family. And so Saul says to his people, his warriors, go and cut all these men down. And then they won't do it. They say, how, how are we going to come and cut down one of God's like priests? Multiple priests? The whole family? We're going to cut all them down? Are you serious? No, we will not do it. Saul, you've lost your mind. But this Edomite, this man, not a part of the people of God, ultimately, you see, has a hatred for them. He is sitting there and he says, I'll do it. I'll cut them down. 
like he's longing for the moment to do it. He has set it up in such a way where hoping it would be done, he presents it to a crazed Saul, a foolish man, a man who was completely and utterly like, it seems like he's lost his mind. And he is there, this man is there, awaiting that moment. Listen, his idea of being mighty, who is, he's boasting in his might. His idea of being mighty was picking on unsuspecting servants of mercy to the people. They're not warriors. They're the ones ministering to the needs of the people. They're not, all the, they're not the ones out there going to war. And he's coming in, and he, he's like this mighty man among people that could, were not prepared to defend themselves. He is going to walk in proudly and destroy them. Spurgeon states, it is a mark of deep depravity when the evil spoken, this man speaks, is intended to promote greater evil. Don't you despise this man? I mean, don't you despise him? You think, I can't stand this man. This man that is sitting there is hatred for the people of God, and he is also like, he's tied to this leader who is in the state of great foolishness consumed with rage and a rebellious man himself and he is the worst part of that man he is like you know when you see the like a cartoon where you see a little devil on someone's shoulder and then the angel on the other side and you say there's one speaking in the ear like do it do it do it that's he's that kind of person a living person in Saul's life just saying destroy them, cut them down. They have dishonored you. It doesn't matter if they're God's chosen people to to do God's ministry to the people. Cut them down. He's like crying out within, we want blood. The guy has a thirst for the blood of the priest. Can't stand this guy. Can you? He, he, He makes, you know, you just despise him. kind of think like why would Saul have a man like that not a part of the people of God not in love with the things of God quick to kill the people of God why would he have someone like that close to him why why would you ever put a fool near you as a leader even like you think like why would you have someone that you know does not have the values, the convictions, and a faithful heart towards God. Why would you have someone like that close to you? You think, Saul, I'm mad at you too. Why would you, you know you're going to make foolish decisions. Why would you have a fool standing next to you who is quick to do evil, who does not value the things of God, who does not love the things of God, who does not pursue the things of God? And you think, I can't stand this guy. I don't want to hear anything about Saul. I don't want to hear anything about Doeg. And Doeg comes with his evil tongue, plotting destruction like a sharp razor. Like he is waiting for the moment. 
in the shadows secretly, and He's going to come and He wants to strike down. With His words first. And followed by, like, if He gets the chance with His sword. He loves evil more than good. And lying more than speaking what is right. This is also kind of a frightening thing because have you ever thought, I've been around people like that. Who, they, literally, you think, have they ever not twisted anything? I mean, has there ever been a moment in their life that they've not twisted something? You ever been around someone like that? Where you're like, they take something good and they make it evil over and over and over again. And they lie and they deceive and they corrupt and they're like, they're infusing darkness into situations and they're bringing that on people and they are bringing destruction every time their poisonous tongue speaks. And you're like, someone silence them. I mean, I have, I've found myself before thinking, God, deaden their tongue. They are a poison. They are corrupted. They are dark, and it's like perverting everything around them. It is, it is infiltrating people around them, everybody around them hearing those things. And, and a lot of times, unsuspecting foolish people can't even see what's happening. They're so depraved and so dark and so deceptive and so filled with lying and filth and darkness. It is like, I can't stand it. You ever feel that way? You ever felt that way? Like this person with a razor's edge is so cutting like a surgeon. He is destroying the people of God. And foolish people like Saul want that kind of fool close so that when they have the most evil thought they could ever have, those people are licking their chops. You ever wonder, will God judge them? The man who loves evil more than good. The woman who loves evil more than good. The one who causes more destruction rather than good. The one who blesses rather than like perverts. Will God deal with that? Judgment for a wicked man the context is this man who goes in and kills an, I mean, an innumerable number of priests by his deceptive tongue first and by his hand second. Verse 4, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. You delight in devouring 
You love it. You wake up in the morning hoping you will have an opportunity to use your deceitful tongue to devour the unsuspecting. As soon as they walk out the door, as soon as there's a moment, I get to use it. I get to send it out. Today I get to blast it across the world. I love causing trouble. I love breaking people. I love destroying them behind their backs. I love to see it. I love blood in the streets. I love to see someone fall. I delight in it. I'm awaiting for the moment to find one area where I can take my razor and cut them to the core i want them bleeding i want them in the corner sitting there dying before my eyes i want that you're like good night that's this man but god will break you down forever he will snatch and tear you from your tent he will uproot you from the land of the living What's going to happen to someone like this? What is their future? He was, listen, he was high up in the kingdom. He was right there beside the king. A foolish king. But he was right there beside him. He would have been at all the stuff. He was one of the most powerful men in Israel. Right there beside the king. Waiting for the king to do what that foolish king did, which was to be driven by his emotions. He's waiting for that moment. Hoping in it. Looking for it. Waiting for the moment to devour. But there's someone watching. This man lurking in the shadows, watching what happens for David. This, to David or whatever. He doesn't know. There is someone who sees when nobody else sees. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Last Castle. Robert Redford. I think that's it's called The Last Castle. Uh, but he is this, um, he, he's imprisoned kind of falsely, uh, but he's a general who was imprisoned falsely. And uh, he's sent to this place where the man, the warden of this prison, um, thinks of himself as a great military leader. And he's, he's always like looking for the moment where he can uh, hurt the prisoners in some way as this powerful leader. He has all of his little memorabilia from different things. He studies all these great generals. He has it all perfectly in his office and he looks down upon these people who have no way of defending themselves. He looks at them as really the enemy that he's defeating. And guess what happens? Robert Redford shows up and he's in his. he looks like just a regular prisoner and they find out they know he was a general, but he's like, what can he do? And through great self-sacrifice, ultimately losing his life, do you know what he did? He overthrew the whole thing, right? And there's things here when I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about this, 
like this man thinks that he is so great, he is so powerful, and yet God in his enormous wisdom and his mercy for his people, these boasting, rebellious, God-rejecting pagan people who are causing destruction on his people, God in his infinite mercy sends among them a servant who walks among the people, who suffers like the people suffer, who faces the trouble that they face. But all along the way, and we get to read it because we get to read our Bibles, he's the king, but nobody knows it. And the king comes and he suffers with them and struggles with them. And ultimately, these falsely courageous, really cowards kill him. But little do they know. They have worked into the perfect plan. He is resurrected and forever defeats those who have rebelled against God, who have persecuted his people, who have by their tongues taught, caused destruction. Jesus comes and rescues his people. And so what happens? He will snatch and tear and uproot those people from the land of the living. As I think I read this earlier, but Spurgeon says like, God will outlive this man and he will outlive everyone like him. He will outlive them and he will execute his judgment. We see here divine justice proving itself more than a match for human sin. That's an awesome thing. So when you're thinking about this, and you really, honestly, today you may say, well, I don't know that I've really ever seen evil, never really thought about it, blah, blah, blah. Well, you will. I mean, there's just, there's coming times in your life where you're going to see it, and, and some of you see it in a national way. Some of you see it on the world stage. Some of you have seen it in your family. Some of you have seen it in a church. I mean, there, there's a long list of areas where you have watched it and you've thought, how long, O oh Lord, until you bring judgment and you need to know that God's judgment will come. And that should comfort you and encourage you. That's where we go now. So we say, we look at the context, we know what it's about, we see the character of this man, we see God's judgment, and then the righteous will see the wicked fall, but they will stand. Look at verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge. I just want you to see that just for a moment. He's saying, like, they're going to see it, and they're going to be in awe of it. And sometimes that's the most comforting thing for you to know. God will right all the wrongs. It's like a, okay, God's going to handle that. God will take care of that. God will judge the wicked we we can know that you say man it just seems like they are doing everything they can to destroy the church or they're doing everything they can to divide this church and you think this person is in the way and they're never gonna like we're, we're never gonna get anywhere because they keep trying to infiltrate and destroy and destroy and destroy and you think i don't understand god why are you so silent why aren't you acting why aren't you moving And yet in this text, the Bible says the righteous shall see it. 
they will see the wicked judge. They shall laugh at him. And I, I mean, I think it's something of a solemn laugh. It's not necessarily just, oh, that was really funny. It, it's more of like, a, a so, it's almost like, if, I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you just almost couldn't hold back a laugh because it was so intense, it just caught you like, oh my goodness. But it, it is that reminder, they'll just be overwhelmed. There's a certain level of joy. They, they, they're just kind of capture that in that moment. And I think, uh, I think about uh, Revelation 6, 10, and 11 where the saints who have lost their lives for the gospel, are, are, they are before the throne of God and they're crying out how long and he covers them and he says, just wait a little while longer until I accomplish all the things that I, I need to accomplish until the full number of your fellow servants and brothers are complete. Wait until then and then I will judge and you will see. That, that's, a, that's a comforting deal. There are sometimes things that happen in your life where you're like, man, you're scratching your head thinking like, there's no justice in this world. And this is what you might say to yourself. There may not be justice in this world, but there is justice in the world to come. And you can trust that. Leave room, Romans says, for the wrath of God because He will judge. He will. Verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. He had found refuge in his own might. He had found refuge in everything but God. Look how strong he is. The idea here is that everything he worked for to build up a fortress around his life, when he stands before God, it is nothing. And the question you could ask is, where is he now? The man who hasn't thought of God as his refuge, the man who hasn't come under the shelter of the Almighty, the man who has not aligned himself with the people of God, where is he now? He is in the grave. Where will he be on the last day? On the last day of judgment, before the great throne of God, where will he be? He will come under the judgment of God. This man who loved to know that people were afraid to speak his name without a tinge of fear running down their spine. Who always sought refuge in the work of his own hands. Who sought evil. Who treasured it. Who stood atop things and said, look how great I am. This man will face complete ruin and the people of God will see it and rejoice in him. Spurgeon states that wealth and wickedness are deceitful companions combined. They make a monster. But you know what? God is going to slay the monster. That's what this is about. This psalm is about. And for some of you, you might be like, man, is this, I mean, that's what it's about. This is something the people of God were to sing because they knew what it was like to face trouble and they knew what it was like to be around the wicked and they knew what it was like to have sorrow and they knew that on a corporate sense and they knew that individually and they knew what it was like in such a way that God needed to speak to them and say it will not always be like that. That's just an amazing reality. 
The man who builds his life on sand, when the flood of God's judgment comes, he will be swept away. The one who builds his house on the rock, the one who is putting his full hope in Christ, the one who is finding shelter in the Almighty, when the winds blow, he will stand. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, the grandson of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, he was using his power to get all of the temple uh, cups and plates and out, and he's drinking from them and having these crazy kind of parties and praising the gods of all of the idols of the age and all of the powers that were out there and uh, the gods of wood and hay and all, I mean, or whatever the different things and silver and gold and all of that. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this great party, there's a hand that appears and writes on a wall. And he has to ask for Daniel to come. And Daniel speaks to him, and he explains to him the judgment that would fall on him. He said, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. He has weighed you in the balances and found you wanting. That is what this text centers us on. Verse 8 and 9. But the righteous, the man who puts his hope and trust in the Lord, who hopes in Him, who like builds his life on the Lord, this one, listen to what it says, is like a green olive tree in the house of God. It says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. What is he saying? You servants of God, you priests who drew close to God, like you who were as close to the house of God as you could get, you might say, you, you people that trusted in the steadfast love of God, know this. God did not leave you there in your death. You're not, your future is not tied up in your physical life. Like It's not. You have hope of a future. There is a future for you. Wait upon the Lord and He will be faithful to preserve you forever. It is good, he says, to be in the presence of the godly, knowing the Lord has watched and cared and protected them, even if they lost their life. That's why Jesus could say, who cares if they can kill the body? You need to fear the one who, who will put, you know, plunge both body and soul in hell. Trust in Him. Hope in Him. Find your refuge in Him. This psalm reminds you at the end of Psalm 1, who those who delight themselves in the law of the Lord, they're like a tree planted by streams of water, that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. God will be with them forever. They have an eternal reward. So when you look at this text today, some of you, this is, this, this is important to say, some of you have been hurt deeply by someone. A wicked person. A person filled with like rage. A damning tongue that is cutting away. And they have done so. They may not have killed you, but they have 
taken much away from you. By the way, if that's your best friend, it doesn't need to be. If you're like kicking it with a poisonous person, you need to kick out of that kind of. If you are one of those people, if you are, you find yourself constantly running your mouth and tearing people down like you're in a frightening place. Just understand that. But looking at this text, you're saying some of you have been hurt badly. And you can't hardly stand it. You just think, what, where was God? Where was He? You might say, where was He when all these priests died? Like, where, where is He? Some of you may be, again, the one who boasts in your wickedness. You love hurting people because you think you've been hurt. Maybe you're like the Apostle Paul who secretly acts as if you want the things of God living for the glory of God in your mind and yet you have brought so much pain to others. You've in a sense destroyed them with your tongue. Maybe you're there. What do we do with the pain we've been caused or the pain that has been caused to us? You hear that? What do you do if you've been the one who has hurt others, like destroyed others, or have been destroyed by others? I would say Jesus came twice. For the afflicted, run to the second coming. Jesus will return. Jesus will judge. Jesus will address every wicked deed. Jesus will inflict perfect justice. Jesus will vindicate his people. And it will last forever. For the afflictor, run to the first coming of Christ. Every wicked and evil deed, every evil word you have spoken to destroy or disrupt God and his people, turn to Christ today. Find hope in him. Christ endured the wrath of God for your wrath. So for either one, the afflictor or the afflicted, you are driven to the person and work of Christ. You are driven to his first and second coming. And you are coming to that place where you say, Oh Lord, please help us. I have been afflicted. I have been the afflictor. Oh Lord Jesus, please help us. Learn from the wisdom of this song. Lord, have mercy on us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your goodness and your mercy and for how you speak to us. You do not leave us. We know that we have been on both sides of this psalm. We know that our hearts are there often, if maybe our tongues never do anything and our bodies never strike out, we know how easy it is to be 
in both places. Pray, Lord, today that you would drive all the most guilty in here or the most hurt in here. Drive us all to our Lord and Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with